Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Welcome, everybody, to today's virtual conversation on COVID-19 and the future of US-China strategic competition. I'm Dan Kleiman, Senior Fellow and Director of the CNAS Asia Pacific Security Program. Before I introduce the other speakers today, I wanna to provide some very brief context. The last great international disruption, the global financial crisis of 2008-2009, was very much a turning point in the strategic competition between the United States and China. It set back the American economy, damaged the legitimacy of the US economic model, and created an opportunity that Beijing exploited to advance its global ambitions. It's already clear that COVID-19 will be another turning point, but whether this new trajectory will prove more favorable to China or the United States remains less certain. With that, I want to introduce two other speakers on today's webinar. The first is Edward Wong, who is a diplomatic correspondent for the New York Times who reports on foreign policy from Washington. Edward is also a fellow at the Wilson Center and previously ran the Times Beijing Bureau. The other speaker with us today is my colleague, Christine Lee, who is an associate fellow with the Asia Pacific Security Program. Uh, right before we start the conversation, let me just quickly cover ground rules for today's webinar. Just so everyone is on the same page, we are all on the record. This is being recorded and we'll end up posting today's conversation on the new CNAS Live podcast platform. There will be a short period for Q&A at the end, roughly the last five to 10 minutes. And to submit a question, what you can do is go to the bottom of your screen. You'll see a little button that says Q&A. You can submit any time during the conversation. I would encourage you to submit early to get in the queue. And just keep in mind, this is on the record. You can submit anonymously or not. Um, and we'll curate those questions. So with that, let's start the conversation. This first question, Edward, is for you. In my view, the Communist Party of China is now running the same playbook as it did in 2008, 2009, essentially trying to take advantage of a global crisis to undermine American influence uh, with a twist. This time, uh, there's a remarkable combination of chutzpah and cynicism, given that Beijing suppressed information on COVID-19 that might have prevented a global pandemic. Uh, Edward, is your, is your reporting on this, do you see, is China's strategy working? the world are still grappling with it. Uh, everyone, um, as far as I can tell, everyone's still scrambling to get um, adequate health equipment in place. Uh, China is moving to fill some of those gaps. Um, the U.S. has announced various levels of funding, but it itself is short of a lot of medical gear and health equipment, so it's asking for help from other countries itself. And it's also agreed to take um, forms of aid, medical aid from China, purchased equipment um, that's being flown in on, air, on planes. And I think um, there's been reporting that shows Jerry Kushner, for example, uh, tried to help organize some of that and that there are uh, American officials who 
are lobbying to work with China so that America can get certain types of equipment. So it's a very complex situation right now. And it's hard for me to tell how all this will shake out, say, several months from now. I mean, I think um, we could see resurgences of the pandemic. Um, China itself might uh, be sounding optimistic right now, but the situation for them could change two or three months from now if there's a big resurgence in China also. I think that's a great point that Xi Jinping has very much staked his legitimacy on handling uh, the first round of the COVID-19 outbreak. But if it reemerges again in China, I mean, both for China's global reputation and then domestically, he could be pretty hard pressed. Uh, Edward, you, you talked a bit about the U.S. response. And Christine, I'd invite you to jump in. Uh, in the kind of context of strategic competition, how is the U.S. faring? I mean, it's early days, of course, in COVID-19, but what, how would you evaluate the U.S. response? Sure. Um, so I think I'd echo Edward's initial observation that, you know, and, and yours as well, that it's still a little too early to tell. Um, the United States has clearly faltered and made some grave errors in its uh, initial domestic response. And we're seeing the consequences of that today. Um, but the United States is still very much in the throes of this crisis. Um, I do think that there's a near-term decision point confronting the United States and its allies um, in which in, in one potential future, the pandemic and its after effects could be, you know, a galvanizing moment for uh, democracies and U.S. allies and partners to rally around shared values, um, including freedom of speech and um, access to, to accurate information and freedom of press that China would obviously prefer, prefer that the world uh, eschew. But on the other hand, um, China, if unchallenged by an alternative form of global and moral leadership, um, could be emboldened to completely co-opt uh, the role that the United States has long played. Um, I'd like to say something just about the sort of competition for the narrative um, of how this started and and comparing uh, comparing that to 2008, for example. So, um, partly the uh, weakness of the U.S. financial system that was exposed in 2008 is something that's um, very much part of the historical record right now. And so I think that there's no disputing what caused the global financial crisis in 2008. I think, um, you know, right now there's a competition about the narrative of how the virus started. And China obviously wants to suppress um, the idea that failings within its political um, system allow the virus to spread well beyond Wuhan, well, throughout Wuhan first in late November to December and then onward. Um, and the U.S. has been trying through various means to, you know, hold China accountable for that. I think in the end, countries will not buy the Chinese narrative that this virus did not spread because of failings on the part, certain failings on the part of Chinese officials. I think that that will become, you know, a well-known, well-documented narrative among officials in many countries, even if they not, might not publicly say that. I think there's a difference between what officials and national leaders are willing to publicly say versus um, what their understanding of a situation is. So, you know, I think that China will, through various um, diplomatic means, whether it's coercive or persuasive, try and get people not to publicly say that. But I think in general, there will be an understanding that this started from China and that certain failings 
very critical failings within the system of reporting in China led to this pandemic. That's a great point. Um, it's been striking to see certainly the, the critiques of China, even from some unfamiliar places such as Iran, where officials have and then quickly been sort of subdued and quieted, but places that are typically Chinese, China's diplomatic allies, clearly it's, this has resonated and caused kind of a long-term damage to its reputation. Yeah, um, that's a, a great point. And I think, um, curious how you think, um, you know, that calculation about the narratives will sort of inform the United States' overall approach to China. Um, you mentioned, you know, it's obviously still a very fluid situation. Um, but I was struck by um, a piece that you and Anna Swanson wrote uh, last week in which you said um, that Washington and Beijing have reached, um, and quote, a tentative, uneasy truce um, amid the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, you've seen even now some of the, the fiercest critics within the Trump administration sort of doubling down on their denunciation of the CCP. Um, while on the other hand, and on the other side of the spectrum, um, you see others uh, urging for cooperation between the two countries. And so thinking about those two competing um, and at times contradictory dynamics, um, curious to know how you uh, anticipate the United States' approach to China will um, sort of evolve in, in the months ahead in the near-term future. All right. I think it'll be... Um, it depends on which faction within the U.S. government, within Trump administration, you're looking at. And I think that it'll be um, that the approach to China will swing wildly as it's done over the past three years. I think one um, common misperception of the Trump administration's approach to China is that it has had a uniformly tough approach to China. I think it that varies widely and it goes through ups and downs. I mean, it had, the language and the rhetoric have been tough, but um, the actions haven't always matched the words of the administration. So, for example, uh, we see people like Secretary of State Pompeo often criticizing the um, camps in Xinjiang, the Muslim internment camps. But at the same time, there haven't been a lot of policies that have backed up the rhetoric of that. And I think that we're going to see that in the current crisis and the aftermath of this crisis, too. So, for example, you'll see people calling out China and saying, oh, China was responsible for this. But at the same time, what will the policies be? Right now, it seems like within the administration, you have certain advisors, ones who are often associated with the finance industry, for example. So like um, Steven Mnuchin, um, Jared Kushner, who's a businessman, um, Larry Kudlow. They're the ones who are advocating for working with China right now, for working with China to get medical supplies to come in here, for dialing back the rhetoric so that you don't jeopardize that, for staying on a decent footing so that if China gets the vaccine first, for example, that they won't withhold it from the U.S. Um, and also for working with China on economic policies that can bolster the global economy. Um, obviously, there's a large faction within the administration that believes um, that the stock market and um, the economy are the most important things for this administration and that it's critical, you know, not only for the well-being of, uh, say, the business interests in the U.S., but it's also critical for Trump's re-election chances. And I think that they see cooperating with China in some manner as important for that. Whereas on the other side, you have national security hawks like 
Pompeo or Matt Pottinger, Deputy National Security Advisor, or Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor, who are very much focused on the national security implications of this and are believe in taking a much harder approach on national security issues. Um, I would put sort of Justice Department officials in that camp also. Thanks. And it's it's interesting that you mentioned the domestic political angle. I mean, there's been recent public opinion polling showing that the COVID-19 pandemic has certainly influenced uh, U.S. perceptions, domestic public perceptions of China across both parties, Republicans swing even harder uh, in terms of blaming China and wanting sort of action taken. And so you wonder how that might also play into kind of the domestic politics of this and potentially some pressure on the president to be tough, but very much agree with you on sort of the, the distinct factions within. Um, Edward, I, I do want to pivot slightly from kind of focus on U.S. strategy to kind of implications for China globally. And you and I, of course, met through uh, your reporting and my research on China's Belt and Road, uh, Xi Jinping's signature vision of a world connected by Chinese-funded physical and digital infrastructure, a kind of economic effort that very much is linked to China's larger geopolitical ambitions. Um, even before the, the COVID-19 pandemic, there were questions being raised about was China going to be able to sustain the Belt and Road given the kind of resources and kind of economic slowdown at home? And I'd be interested to get your take. Do you see COVID-19 fundamentally disrupting the Belt and Road? Do you think there'll be a return to business as usual? How do you see this playing out? I mean, I think if we're talking about global recession, there's no doubt that there will be some ratcheting back of a lot of Belt and Road projects. Um, I mean, both the supply side and demand side change because obviously China will take a long time to get its industries back in order. Um, and on the demand side, a lot of countries are probably trying and back away from contracts or um, sort of tentative agreements that they have reached, or they might try and just sort of um, scrap them all together unilaterally. And so I think that we're going to see that happening because already, even before this, we had seen signs of some countries trying to renegotiate certain Belt and Road contracts or backing away from them for various reasons. Um, and I think we're going to see an acceleration of that. Yeah, that's definitely my perspective too, that even some of the kind of defining practices of many Belt and Road projects, the importation of labor from China, uh, that there will be kind of a rethink on sort of that level of dependency. And this will definitely be more than kind of a temporary speed bump uh, for China's efforts. I want to turn a little bit now toward the informational contest, the the kind of battle of narratives. And we've spoken about it a little bit already, uh, but taking a step back from just COVID-19, I mean, what are you seeing as China tries to kind of manipulate, manipulate the information space? I mean, it seems like the kind of effort's gone into overdrive with COVID-19, but what do you see is kind of the same in like the last three or four months up to now? And, and what are some of the kind of differences in how China's approaching its kind of uh, efforts to shape the global narratives? Um, I think it's changed uh, week by week, uh, you know, since the, since the winter when the, all this um, started, when the crisis started. Um, I think obviously, first there was a whole information space around what was going on within China. So you saw, you know, the, um, a certain level of self-censorship or censorship among um, Chinese officials and both a dynamic between local officials and the and you know central Beijing on what was going on in Wuhan and local officials trying to cover it up, and then you know at some level the um, Beijing Central also tried to downplay the level of the crisis, um, 
And then as the pandemic has spread around the world and as China started to get its own outbreak under control more or less, uh, it's tried to push a narrative that um, the Chinese method of dealing with this pandemic is maybe the ideal one, that other countries have criticized the draconian steps it took in Wuhan initially, but that it's those steps, this very firm lockdown that has led China to to really suppress the pandemic uh, within its own borders. Um, And now you're seeing it steer some of the criticism towards, um, you know, the idea that foreigners are bringing in the virus and that it's sort of um, put a hold on um, people coming into China, including people who have long-term resident visas in China, business people, uh, journalists, others. Um, It's keeping them from coming back to China. Um, And that plays into a narrative that it's people from outside who are bringing in the virus and continuing to spread. Um, Part of the information control, I also think, is the uh, expulsions, for example, of three of most Americans who are working for three major news bureaus, including the New York Times. Um, I think that's a very complicated matter. It's wrapped up also in sort of an escalatory cycle that's taken place between the U.S. government and Beijing on the presence of media employees in both countries. Um, we saw the U.S. take some hard steps on that, trying to seek reciprocity and then Beijing hitting back hard by moving towards the expulsions of most Americans from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and um, the Washington Post. Uh, and um, But partly all that's wrapped up also in controlling the narrative around uh, COVID-19 and controlling reporting around COVID-19 too. Thank you. It's been interesting how China's tried to sort of uphold its system as, as the optimal way to deal with COVID that, of course, you have uh, democracies like South Korea, Taiwan, and, and farther away, Germany, that seem to be dealing with it quite effectively. Uh, and so it is somewhat ironic that there are quite effective democratic models, but of course, China trying to hold up its, its authoritarian system, in my own view. Um, I want to pose a question to Christine, also on the kind of narrative. It's been quite striking uh, to see Moscow and Beijing coordinate their messaging on COVID-19, and and I know you're doing work on this right now. How concerned should the United States be about this type of cooperation, and and where is this trending? Yes, it's been really fascinating uh, to observe these trend lines, actually, in some instances where uh, Russian influence activities Uh, particularly on social media platforms, but also through traditional media, um, sort of echoing and uh, mirroring and in many cases um, yielding secondary benefits for China. Um, We're seeing some mutual learning and message amplification between uh, Beijing and Moscow, um, even before COVID-19 on a range of issues, um, including Hong Kong, but especially now amid uh, the pandemic. Um, So, you know, we've I've seen uh, outlets like RT and other Kremlin-backed state media um, repeatedly indicating that U.S. officials are exploiting the current pandemic for for personal gain um, and, of course, suggesting that the virus was engineered um, in American labs and being used as an agent of biological warfare against China. Um, It's been interesting to see how China has taken this narrative and really ran with it. Um, including through using American uh, social media to amplify these conspiracy theories about the virus being manufactured um, in American labs um, and 
you know, recently Chinese diplomats have grown pretty active um, on on Twitter, um, sort of amplifying these narratives and also um, using bots to, to retweet um, these sorts of, of narratives. Um, and I just note here that um, Dan, I and a couple of other CNS colleagues have a report coming out on this, um, on the very topic of, of synergies between uh, Russian and Chinese digital influence campaigns um, as their interests start to align on, on issues like COVID-19, but also in other uh, strategic regions. And so thinking about how um, Chinese and Russian goals are, are obviously different in important ways, but are also um, converging. And, and so democracies need to, to get ahead of this convergence and synergies and um, build resilience against these narratives. I think um, just to build on that, I think, you know, one of the most um, interesting inflection points during this whole thing was when the diplomat Zhao Lijian, one of the spokespeople for the Chinese foreign ministry and former diplomat in the Pakistan embassy, you know, he came out on Twitter and just said, oh, maybe it was the U.S. Army that brought the virus to Wuhan. I think that that was like an infamous moment in the information campaign, and it sort of showed that Chinese officials were willing to take that campaign to a new level because it, um, in my memory, I can't remember another recent moment when a um, Chinese diplomat outright pushed um, a conspiracy theory like that. And, and then that was amplified by uh, the official uh, diplomatic accounts of various Chinese embassies around the world, um, including Africa, for example. So, um, you know, like the, U the Chinese officials often will say things like, oh, there's the black hand, like the black hand of foreign powers behind the Hong Kong protests or things like that. And, you know, during the Hong Kong protests, we saw Chinese media name an American diplomat. Um, but that's different than sort of implying that the U.S. military brought a bioweapon to China and unleashed it in China. I think that's a different level of narrative that they were pushing there. Um, we had um, heard from some sources that maybe uh, Jolly Jan might have picked that up from one of these uh, conspiratorial sites, sometimes far-right websites that traffic in um, theories that, as Christine points out, that the Russians have promoted also. And I'd be curious whether your research shows that some of these conspiracy theories originate there and they're picked up by Chinese officials or is it vice versa? Like it's sort of like the whole chicken egg question of where these theories start, I think, and then how they're amplified it is an interesting one. Yeah, so I think if you sort of track the timeline of how those uh, narratives originated and then were amplified by diplomats, I think it, it's sort of an instance of diplomats sort of picking up um, these conspiracy theories from the websites that, that you alluded to. Um, but I think it also just points to really creative use of, um, of storytelling and also um, thinking about increasingly creative ways to present this information on social media. And so, um, you know, beyond the, the conspiracy theories, you saw um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs Information Department Twitter account posting these doctored videos of um, Italian sort of celebrating the Chinese uh, assistance medical aid that was coming in. And, and so I think um, there's an interesting um, uh, trend line in terms of uh, new narratives and also formats that China's using. Um, briefly turning uh, to 
um, how China is acting in the global governance space. And we're actually getting some questions from our audience about this. Um, so the crisis that's unfolded uh, over the past several months have um, certainly provided a, a glimpse of what the world order under Chinese leadership could look like. Um, looking especially at uh, the UN and how China is uh, leveraging this crisis to position itself at the helm of um, organizations like the WHO. Um, and the UN announced just last week that it's partnering with uh, Tencent, the Chinese tech giant, to conduct its 75th anniversary celebrations uh, virtually. Um, so curious to uh, ask how you're thinking about um, current trend lines in which you know, is China completely emboldened um, to co-opt these organizations um, with the WHO and other agencies essentially becoming a platform for China's foreign policy initiatives? Um, or do you see a, an alternative scenario in which um, the pandemic sort of serves as a galvanizing factor for the United States and its allies to coalesce and push back against China in a really concerted way in these organizations? Well, I think when, um, even before this, we saw sort of China uh, making moves to exert greater influence on a lot of multilateral organizations. And, you know, as any sort of uh, world superpower, you would expect that of them. You wouldn't expect any less from China. Um, I think that there's been a lot of questions raised over the WHO. Obviously, Trump has brought that to the surface very front and center, has threatened to withhold funding from the WHO, and the U.S. is by far the biggest um, donor to the WHO. So the question is, um, you know, to what degree is China exerting influence on the WHO? I think that's obviously they, um, the WHO, I think, could have been much more rigorous in its pronouncements and its analysis of the situation starting in late December onward into January, or in December onward into January. Um, and, you know, people have criticized it for taking China's word at face value on certain things about the virus. And I think that there's um, valid criticism there. Um, at the same time, it's hard to figure out what China's leverage is over the WHO because they, they're not a big donor. The amount of money they give is very small. So it's a little bit of a mystery, I think, to people who are examining this whether China is really twisting the arm of the WHO. It's hard to tell. I mean, and then obviously people in the WHO themselves, there's a certain level of self-censorship regarding China because we saw this famous video that came out, video snippet between a Hong Kong journalist and a WHO official where she asked about Taiwan's membership or its status in WHO, and he instantly sort of just cut off the video and stopped talking. Um, to her when that came up. And I think that, that um, betrays the a sense of a certain level of self-censorship within the WHO on issues, on sensitivities regarding China, China issues around China. Um, so that raises further questions. But again, there's, there, it's very opaque. We can't tell what the leverages that China has in the WHO. Obviously, in the UN, it's a different matter. It's on the Security Council. It's on five permanent members of the Security Council. It's got a lot more leverage on there. Um, as for whether the U.S. will sort of rally at this moment to band together with allies to sort of form some, some sort of front against China's um, attempts to exert greater influence, I think, you know, we have to look at what this administration is, and it's one that has backed away from alliances, that has 
sort of uh, criticized allies more than praised allies, and that's caused a lot of um, tension with a lot of its allies, whether it's Korea, South Korea, for example, or Japan, or um, France and Germany and Britain. So um, I don't think that, I think the, you know, it's unclear what, how this administration would actually hold together coalitions or alliances to form a united front, if you wanted to call it that, against China's growing influence. It's tried that and it hasn't worked that well. I think partly because um, allies have, um, you know, disliked the attitude that this administration takes towards their governments. And we've seen the effort that this administration made with the 5G network and it's pushed hard to have different countries reject, um, you know, Huawei's, uh, you know, attempts to build, build up 5G networks in countries. And not a lot of allies have signed on quickly on that. Um, and Britain's decision a few months ago um, to allow Huawei into to help build parts of the network or main parts of the network really um, raised questions about this administration's approach. Thanks, Edward. I'm actually going to pull in one of the questions posed now because it is so relevant to this part of the conversation. Uh, and so I think we'll, we'll weave in a few questions as we go, maybe go a little bit beyond 235 since we started just a touch late. Uh, so the question is, again, about the WHO. Does it make sense for the U.S. to withdraw funding and leave uh, leadership to China or is the way the U.S. can kind of come back and lead? Um, I can give my quick take. I'd be interested in your perspective. I mean, you sound fairly pessimistic based on what you just said in general about kind of the U.S. approach to international organizations. I, I think, I mean, my own view is very much if the U.S. pulls out of the WHO, it essentially cedes the playing field to China, uh, despite being by far the, the largest funder of the organization. I would say I'm slightly more optimistic than you. I mean, there's been a lot of great writing uh, and analysis done about China's role in international organizations and kind of co-optation. But to me, at least, kind of the COVID-19 shows very clearly how sort of the consequences that it's not China trying to brand the sustainable development goals of the UN as part of Belt and Road, which those of us who do China policy, of course, get very concerned about. But they don't have the kind of tangible consequences of a global pandemic. And so uh, maybe I'm a little bit more optimistic than you that um, U.S. ultimately, maybe not in the imminent term, but will be able to rally a group of kind of democratic allies and partners around pushing back. But, but I'd be interested. I mean, do you see um, ultimately, I mean, are you pessimistic or do you think a lot of it just depends on kind of the U.S. leadership and sort of who sits um, in power here? Uh, it could depend on that. I mean, obviously, uh, when you look at different sort of candidates for the presidency, they all say different things about the importance of our alliances. Um, I think Trump's been very candid about where he stands on that. And and obviously, we know what the America First foreign policy um, entails. So um, the, I mean, one question I think that is that China itself is capable of alienating other countries through its own policies. So I think that we shouldn't overlook that factor also. So even if the U.S., for example, um, is taking more belligerent attitudes towards its own allies, that could be overshadowed by the fact that China itself doesn't always um, have, uh, you know, the capability to persuade people to come to its orbit through um, massive soft power, for example. The U.S. is still... Um, you know, despite all the criticisms of the U.S. in recent years, it still has 
um, in my opinion, much stronger soft power and gravitational attraction than other countries in the world. Um, and so um, the question is, in the coming years, will it be able to um, maintain that or build it back up? Or will that continue to deteriorate? I think um, that's an open question. But I think right now China hasn't shown the ability to really um, build up the type of soft power that the U.S. had at the height of its sort of of its days as a superpower. And so I think um, there's still a gap there um, that's waiting to be filled. That's a great point. I think often Beijing is its own worst enemy in terms of promoting its, its global influence and often sort of steps on its, its own message. I want to pivot now a little bit finally to looking at kind of the world post-COVID-19. COVID um, clearly, we're all in the thick of it. It's hard to imagine what the world will look like after, but we will get through this. And when we do, I mean, this is a question for you and Christine uh, as well. What, what kind of areas of U.S.-China competition might emerge to the forefront? What do you see kind of as once we're through this, what's going to be the most pressing areas? Christine, would you like? Sure, I'm happy to jump in first. Um, so I think um, Italy has obviously been an interesting case study to watch um, amidst the, the pandemic and sort of China's um, doubling down on on its uh, sort of deft diplomacy and overtures uh, to, to Italy and um, leaning into its supply of, of medical aid. And I think it sort of speaks to um, the broader opportunity that China sees in Europe. Um, and I think Europe remains an interesting uh, space to watch, be it, um, you know, you, you mentioned sort of diversifying 5G options, um, looking for ways to counter the spread of China's authoritarian model um, through technology. Um, I think, um, you know, China's really seeing the, the pandemic as a window of opportunity to expand its influence and, and fragment Europe from developing a co coherent response um, to China. And as countries um, in Europe, um, most acutely Italy, are um, very much in the throes of this crisis and trying to formulate the response, um, it, it may in some ways sort of accelerate the, the need to reassess their ties with China on, on the one hand. Um, but at the same time, um, China's so categorically advancing um, its, its foreign policy initiatives, even through um, what it's now, um, it's called this for a while, but um, it's health silk road um, to assert its global leadership um, across, across Europe um, and to hard hit countries like Italy. Um, I think you're absolutely right that when you mentioned, for example, that technology will remain um, an area of intense competition. I think this sort of amp, this sort of crisis actually amps up the competition technology, um, not only in sort of uh, things associated with 5G, but for example, big data and, and AI, because I think that as countries grapple with the future of in the coming year with like how to stave off more rounds of this pandemic, um, that there will be greater use of big data, greater use of AI to try and sort of track populations, track the spread of this disease among populations, track who has immunity, um, things like that. And I think there'll be greater surveillance, greater use of big, da big data. And I think that this plays well into sort of like the sort of this types of system that systems that China 
wants to assert as the ideal model for systems going forward. And there'll be a lot of debate over, for example, um, surveillance of, of specific populations. And I think that is a type of model and the use of that type of technology are things that will be um, contested. Uh, and people will start asking, well, was, was, is the U.S. right in sort of saying that individual rights should always be subsumed or should always be, um, you know, dominant rather than are there certain instances, like, for example, a global health crisis when you have to um, step back a little bit from the priority you place on individual rights and engage in surveillance of populations. And you see that debate playing out, for example, right now in Korea. And so in Korea, they've had massive testing. They have warning systems set up where when you people get to cert, like come within proximity of people who have COVID-19, there's a warning that sounds on their phone, for example, in neighborhoods. And I think that these are systems that China will start really putting into place and innovating certain systems like this. And, uh, and they'll try and um, bring this to other countries and there'll be a question of whether people are comfortable adopting this. Thank you. I want to, Edward, just address quickly the last one last outstanding question, recognizing that we don't have time for more than that. Uh, and I do want to give people uh, the rest of their day. But quickly, we had a really interesting question, two part, but I'll, I'll choose one, essentially asking, are there future risk costs of US-China acrimony and any ways to avoid those risks? I think it certainly has been striking to see the lack of cooperation on what should have been easy, a, a global pandemic, as you kind of alluded to. In my view, I mean, a lot of this was due to kind of suspicion by the Communist Party, unwillingness to want to kind of bring in, whether it was the U.S. or, or other kind of international uh, actors early. And so I think some of that is kind of hardwired into the nature of the authoritarian system in Beijing. That said, I do think there are probably ways to try to mitigate this risk. One interesting maybe parallel is on the military side, the U.S. and China have several confidence building measures to try to prevent like accidents uh, at sea or in the air. And you could imagine maybe coming out of this that there will be some sort of confidence building measure on kind of pandemic response where even as the U.S. and China compete, there will at least be kind of an agreed upon mechanism by which the two can coordinate to prevent something like COVID-19 happening again, given that although it is obviously it become an area of competition, has damaged both economically and, and cost the lives of, of many thousands. Um, so with that, unfortunately, we are out of time. So I do want to first say thank you, Edward, for joining us. I know you are always incredibly busy. Very much appreciate your time with us today. Christine, thank you very much for sharing your insights with us. Uh, the audience, we know these are trying times. Many of you are juggling family and work commitments. So thank you for being with us as well. Stay healthy and stay safe. And just kind of one final comment. Uh, we've thought a lot about kind of China's attempts to leverage COVID-19 uh, to its advantage, in my view anyways, at the end of the day, I mean, America has the decisive vote in this, so it's really imperative to get the U.S. response right. So with that, thank you all for tuning in, and we look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Dan and Christine. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook, Thanks for listening.